0: Hey there, Music Podcast for Kids listeners. This message is for teachers and homeschool parents. The Music Podcast for Kids has an awesome digital resource to enhance the experience of the show in your classroom. Easily download 10 of our popular shows in audio and video form, digital and printable listening guides, sing-along songs in video and audio form, percussion parts, lyric and lead sheets. And most importantly, completed lesson plans from our nationally certified teacher, Mr. Fight. Our resource is great for virtual and in-person teaching for homeschool, substitute, and classroom teachers. Find the resources on our website, themusicpodcastforkids.com. We hope you enjoy the show. The music in three, two, three. Having fun,
1: that's what we're gonna do.
0: Mr. Henry,
1: Mr. Fight, exploring along with you. Learning music, having fun,
0: that's what we're gonna do. Mr. Henry, Mr. Fight, love hanging out with you. The The Music Podcast for Kids. Hello, and welcome to the Music Podcast for Kids. We're your hosts, Mr. Henry and Mr. Fight music educators extraordinaire the music podcast for kids is a fun and educational podcast where we learn and explore the best subject ever music and now the music joke of the day
1: we love jokes so if you have a joke please visit our website themusicpodcastforkids.com to submit your joke and guess what It doesn't even have to be a music joke. It can be any joke. We will read and enjoy your joke on the podcast and also let everyone know who it came from and where you are in this great, big, wonderful music
0: world. Our joke of the day is... This joke comes from Madeline, a listener of the show. Why do you never play cards in the jungle? Because there are a lot of... Cheetahs. (laughs) Get it? Cheetahs?
1: Make sure to send in your jokes by visiting our website, TheMusicPodcastForKids.com. A link to the website can be found in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you are enjoying the show so far. Please subscribe to the podcast to receive the latest episodes and leave a review through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Also, get updates on what we are up to through Facebook and Instagram by finding us at Music Podcast for Kids. Links will be found in the show notes. On to the show! Just chat. Just chat. Just chat. Just chat. Just chat. Just chat. Just, chatting, just chatting. Al Petrelli is an American guitarist best known for his work with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Megadeth, Alice Cooper, and many others. Petrelli has been a core member of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra since their first album. As well as being the main lead guitarist, he is also the live musical director. TSO's 2007 tour program, credits his edgy playing and vast musical lexicon with making him a perfect fit for the band's constant boundary-pushing progressive rock styles. Petrelli's leads are notable on Tracers and the instrumental Toccata Carpimus Nocten, the latter being the piece he co-wrote. Both songs form part of the group's fifth rock opera on their 2009 album Nightcastle. A fabulous way to celebrate the holiday season is with the live stream and unique performance of Christmas Eve and Other Stories from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra on December 18, 2020. Visit tsolivestream.com for more info. Al Petrelli, welcome to the show. Uh,
2: thank you so much for having me. How are you guys doing? Doing
0: great. Very good. Very good. So we always like to start out asking our guests about their background with music education as a child. Uh, What musical experiences did you have as as a child in the school setting and even outside of school?
2: Well, anybody from my generation, I'm 58 years old, um, so anybody you talk to who's close to my age probably will say the same thing. The Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 1964. Yeah. You know, I, I was two years old in my feety pajamas, <laughs> and uh, literally was watching the TV. stopped me in my tracks, and as a matter of fact, this guitar, which is a 1930s, was my granddaddy's. Oh wow! Wow! In the corner next to the fireplace, and that's where I keep it in my home now. After all these years, uh, kind of like you know, a commemorative. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, And I just, I remember watching them and it grabbed me from right in the center of my chest and my heart and my soul and never let go. Much to my parents' chagrin, mind you. That was a big thing in the 19th (laughs) century. You know, know, those four lads from Liverpool did not look right on TV. (laughs) Anyway, so, you know, at two years old, it is what it is. And I, you know, I have like a little itty bitty guitar and I just kind of strum and drag around, whatever. And my parents thought it was kind of cute. So they got me guitar lessons at about five years old, maybe six years old, like the local guy in town, opened up Mel Bay's book one, learning how to read. You know, that's all we had back then. Yep. Yeah. And it, it was just, I loved it. I just wanted to be the Beatles. You know, I just wanted to be like John Lennon and Paul McCartney, George Ring, whatever. That, that was it. But then a little bit older, going through the public school system in New York, in the third grade, everybody got an instrument. So mm-hmm. they handed me a trumpet. Okay. Uh, you know, so I was in the wind ensemble, the orchestra, the marching band, you name it, you know. And, and, and what I didn't realize, I mean, I didn't think the trumpet was nearly as cool as the guitar. But, you know, you just did it, and then that's what you did. I was too small to play football, so it was much safer with the bugle. <laughs> but unbeknownst to me at the time, I was learning how to read really, really well. Mm-hmm. I was being, um, uh, I was getting a great education in the works by the great composers. I was understanding um you know, how orchestral music works, how the instruments work, the difference between the different brass instruments, woodwinds, the strings, percussion, all, all that stuff, And you know, I was kind of like rolling my eyes back then because again, you know, I wanted to be in, in, I wanted to be a Beatle or now, you know, by 1970, you know, with the advent of like Zeppelin and Cream and, and all these bands, it's like, you know, I'm in, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I'm, In retrospect, it was probably one of the most important things ever to be part of the public school system in the music departments, because it was basically getting me ready for this job that I had no idea that I didn't see on the horizon that was going to be all encompassing as a musician, not only as a player, you know, being a musical director, I had to have kind of a deep knowledge of all instruments and understanding scores and instrumentation and voicings and all that. And I didn't realize that I knew a lot of it already from just going to school, you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: And you mentioned the Beatles uh, and some other bands. Your inspirations growing up, how how broad uh, were your inspirations in terms of styles and uh, artists,
2: maybe in your high school, pretty, high school years? Yeah, it was pretty broad because, again, you know, going back to that era, there was only AM radio in the 60s, okay? So on uh, WABC AM, it was only top 40 radio. And at that point... Oh. Like whatever was being played, we listened to. So you had the yeah. Beatles, the Beach Boys. Let's say the Stones. Motown was huge. Mm-hmm. Okay, you had show tunes. You know anything like West Side Story, uh, South Pacific, whatever. You know musicals that were popular. All well, those yeah. songs were on the radio. Also, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra. Everything that was being played, I just listened to. Because the only two genres of music that I was aware of and still am aware of is good music and bad music. <laughs> nice. You know, everything else, whatever. But now in the <laughs> 70s, with the advent of AOR radio, that was a whole different thing. Now we were being introduced to bands that weren't playing quote unquote top 40 three minute pop songs. Not this, And I love, you know, like I said, you know, my wife and I last time we watched a documentary on like Gladys Knight and the Four Tops and all, you know, Barry Gordy and the whole Motown thing. That's the soundtrack to my childhood. Right. But yeah. when you click, the radio to FM, and all of a sudden you were listening to Chicago's Transit Authority. You listen to Blood, Sweat, and Tear. First time I heard the Allman Brothers, stop me mm. dead in my tracks. Yeah, you know. And then, then we started exploring like when jazz was crossing over into rock, and you had the the, the days of like the early fusion pioneers. You know, when you had Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock after he left uh, Miles Davis's band, uh, Al Di John McLaughlin. You know, it was just like this is getting crazy. You know, yes, ELP, Pink Floyd. Like, right. So the Seventies was like the Wild West on radio, and I was—I fell in love with all of it.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's neat. And so you were—you were mentioning like in high school, mm-hmm. um, you were playing the trumpet and, and band and all of that. And then, what, did you go to school for music after that, or how did that
2: in college or? Um, yeah, I I, I kind of did. Um, either you do or you did. So, yes, the answer would be yes, I did. But I, I didn't enjoy it as much. I went to a national community college on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like one of those non-committal things. Like community college meant that I woke up at my mother's house, drove to school, <laughs> fell asleep in the parking lot half the time. <laughs> you know, because I was playing in bar bands and staying up like, late at night. You know, like the club yeah. scene in New York back then was mm-hmm. on a different level. You know. Mm -hmm. Um, so I I didn't really benefit too much from it, but I had been studying privately with a bunch of different guitar players back then, and I ended up being a music nerd. Like, I fell in love with the mathematics of music, you know, the theories, all the concepts behind it, so I did a lot of homework on my own, even going back to, like, you Mm -hmm. know, like, late junior high, right through high school, there was some really great theory teachers, uh, ear training, sight singing, solfege, all that stuff. Yeah. Which, um, I didn't realize that it was gonna be that important, but I knew I just didn't do it. It was yeah. either geometry or sightseeing. I was gonna go with sightseeing. <laughs> right. But I did end up, um, I got a little tired to kick around the bars. It felt like a dead end um, scene for a while. So I went to Berkeley College of Music up in Boston mm-hmm. and I ended up staying there for about two and a half semesters. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't thrilled with the curriculum um, because I had kind of, I knew most of this stuff already, right, but right. what I fell in love with was the fact that I kind of gravitated towards a place where musicians from all over the world also yeah. ended up. So, I mean, back then, it's about 1982, I think, I met uh, a couple people in particular, uh, a keyboard player buddy of mine, Derek Sherinian, uh, who ended up going on, he played with me with Alice Cooper, he was uh, was in the band Dream Theater, so I oh, think, wow. yeah. uh, the our little college band was a dude named Will Calhoun who started the band Living Color. Wow. Yeah. You know, wow. So you're talking about, Derek came from Santa Cruz, California. I came from Long Island. Will grew up in the Bronx. Uh, you know, there was a Japanese guitar player from, all the way from Tokyo. So you're talking about people from literally all over the planet. Sure. You know, and now we're all exchanging ideas. Like this one would be talking about, like, you know, Billy Cobb's Spectrum. i be talking about, you know, the Leonard Skinner live album. Uh, somebody would be, you know, like working on Jan Hammer pieces. It was like just as global as the um, the student body was, as was the music. You know, I think one of the Marsalis kids, like the trombone player, I forgot his name, but the younger brother, he was in our art as well. So everywhere you look, man, it was just incredibly talented players. And that really caused me to up my game because now I'm not just the hot shot in my little hometown on Long Island. Mm-hmm. Now, I think 1,200 guitar players enrolled in the first semester up at Berkeley that year. Oh, wow! By the second semester, I think it was down to 200 who well, left. Everybody else just said, uh-uh, "I'm out here." Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, "This this competition is competitive uh, environment. This is really really enjoyable, and I'm really having a great time and getting getting better and realizing how bad I really was simultaneously."
1: <laughs> wow. Now, you've been in a number of uh, pretty famous bands. You mentioned uh, Alice Cooper. and um, So what are some of those bands, and maybe what are some of the highlights of your career so far? I bet there's a, bet there's a bunch, but give us a few highlights. Well,
2: I, I mean, to be honest with you, playing guitar for a living is the highlight, not only of my career, but probably you know a big highlight of my life because I dreamed about this since I was a baby. Right you know, and given the opportunity to put a West ball around my neck and not only perform, but be involved in, you know, in the creation of music and the performance of music, um, uh, again, being a musical director for about 30 years now, you know, to like, you know, kind of organize stuff, uh, come up with the arrangements, uh, to rehearse a band, to really tighten it up, you know, to represent the artists that I'm working for, albeit Alice or with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra or everybody in between. My job is always take their music and make sure it's represented to the best possible standard. You know, so that's always been a challenge and, and I've always enjoyed, you know, rising to that challenge. I mean, listen, on personal notes, like I remember the first time I played with Cooper uh, in London at Wembley Arena. And I looked out in the audience and Jimmy Page was in the front row.
1: Oh, man. And so
2: <laughs> I looked down to Jimmy Page looking back up at me standing next to Alice Cooper. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, <That's laughs> uh, amazing. You know, with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, I mean, Joe Walsh. Uh, sat in with us one night, um, mm. and I remember, uh, like, as a kid, learning all the early James gang music, you know? So, you know, me and my buddy, we'd be learning, like, Funk 49, Walk Away, you know, whatever, Joe Walsh, Rocky Mountain Way, all that stuff. And then now I'm sitting in uh, my dressing room with Joe Walsh, teaching him my guitar parts because he's going to play one of our songs. Whoa. And I couldn't help, you know, be ear-to-ear grinning. And he's like what's the fun and i'm like dude 45 years ago i was trying to figure out the guitar solo the funk 49 here i am teaching you one of my parts right and he, uh, he goes that's how it works you know yeah my um, me tickets a couple of years about four years ago to go see greg allman and uh, we got to meet mm. backstage and i told him what a huge influence he'd been on me my entire life and he said that he loved the work that i've done you know wow. so to hear that from like you know my biggest yeah. idol These are the musical highlights that I just kind of look back and go, it's worth the amount of work you put in to get somewhere just for those moments, you know, money. That's got
1: to feel good. (laughs) Say again? That's got to feel good.
2: Well, it does like, you know, like money and possessions and material things, you know, they come and they go. It is what it is. But, Mm -hmm. you know, the moments that I've shared with some of my heroes, like to be on stage with Paul Rogers, you know, and to become friends with him, I have, um, Downstairs in like my little guitar room, I got a letter uh, that was written by Gary Rossington a couple of years ago. You know, just saying what a huge fan of of mine he was. Whereas I grew up listening to Leonard Skinner. I mean, since I was twelve years old, you know, so to kind of get um, that pat on the back from that generation and the men and the women that I looked up to and held in such high regard. I mean, you know, I just I just would listen to their records literally 12, 13, 14 hours a day, and just you know to one day. For them to turn around and say, well, they enjoy what I do now. That, that's, yeah. Those are the things that I will take with me professionally for the rest of my life. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Cool. And so it makes it
2: work, dude, because, you know, to put 10,000 hours into something to be good at with no guarantee that you're ever going to accomplish anything, you know, and all you're doing is you're self-motivating and being self-disciplined to say, I just want this because I love it so much. Whether I can ever make a living or not, I don't know. But I got to try. I got to work as hard as I can to be as good as I can possibly be. And then when you finally start to, to realize some of the accolades, and again, like the ones I talked about, the, the money and the other things don't really matter as much as, again, for somebody like a Steve Vai to look at me and go, dude, you're killing it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
2: That's that, I'm okay with that, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> So I'd like to um, switch the focus on to like, the project you're doing now. Um, so we've talked about uh, the orchestra on the music podcast for kids.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so you're the live music director for the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So we're curious how the name was chosen, and how does it compare to like a symphony orchestra that, that we've discussed on the show?
2: Okay, so the first question is, how was it named? And I yeah. think... The- question about a thousand times over the last 25 years I don't know (laughs) (laughs) that
1: works good answer.
2: (laughs) Paul O'Neill is the gentleman who founded the organization you know and he had called me back in the early winter of 1995 to work on um, this record he was producing and I was pretty much being a session guitar player in New York City at the time he didn't want a session player so he was auditioning all these amazing guitar players and Just wasn't getting exactly what he needed, the right part, the right, like, extra touch of color for the songs that he had put together. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he called me up. um, He put the faders up on this song. And I remember, you know, like when your dog looks at you and tilts its head (laughs) because it's not really sure what you're saying. That's how I looked at Paul. And I'm like, dude, what's with the Christmas song? (laughs) And he kind of laughed. He said, well, it's not really a Christmas song. It's more of a a, a soundtrack depicting events that took place on Christmas Eve in the middle of the Sarajevo conflict in the Bosnian War. I said, stop. I was Alice's musical director in 1990. I played in Zagreb and Belgrade. I know the town square that you're depicting in your song. Just press record. And I started playing the first couple notes of what's become Christmas Eve 1224, Sarajevo. And he goes, that's exactly what I was looking for. Anyway, you fast forward the end of '95. Somehow it ended up at radio, and it became the number one requested song in America in about 30 seconds that year. Yeah. Okay, every radio station in America played it. It exploded. Yeah, you know. And I was—I thought that was it. I was like, "All right, cool." You know, <laughs> you know, I got to play guitar on this like crazy metal Christmas song. You know, All right? Awesome. I was happy that that was it. We're good. Yeah. Not with Paul O'Neill, and you know, and this. <laughs> So he said, I got an idea. I want to write a record around this whole thing, and I'm going to call it ready? And I said, yeah. He goes, I'm going to call it the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And (laughs) I'm (laughs) like, you know, mind you, you know, the Trans-Siberian Railroad kind of, you know, goes from one portion of the continent to the other. You know, when we would fly from London to Tokyo, you go over all of Asia, you know, and that whole continent. It's just vast. Wow. And he thought, you know, mm-hmm. that just sounded like it was going to connect cultures and demographic yeah. Yeah. and ages and all. And to be honest with you, it's like, like when, when Jimmy Page and Robert Plant said, we're going to call the band Led Zeppelin. Okay. Yeah. Right. It right. became uh, its own thing. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Paul tried to explain to me the, the detailed story about the naming of it. I was just happy that he called it something and I was happy to do one record, <laughs> you know, that was 15 million records ago and 25 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So, in answer to your second question, how does it relate? Um, it, it does in the respect that we do record and perform with a full orchestra and a full, you know, um, multi-timbral uh, choir. Mm-hmm. All right. So there is everything, every instrumentation-wise, it is all represented. And we've um, incorporated themes from the great composers into some of the work that Paul put together. Obviously, you know, some traditional Christmas themes, you know, church themes as well, like okay. Carol the Bell. The rest your married gentleman is the, the song to put us on the map, right? Along with Paul's genius is, is kind of like putting it together and then putting a really heavy, darker twist on it again because it is a dark story yeah. with mm-hmm. what that song originally represented. Now it's become syn- synonymous with you know <laughs> that <laughs> right Christmas time, Santa's all sorts of cool now, you know Yeah, right. <laughs> but and again, going back to the front of our conversation, when I was a kid, you know, I didn't realize that you know reading scores was gonna help out later on in life or being able to, you know, sight transpose. I remember the second song Paul put up was Mozart's 24th and 25th symphony. Mm-hmm. He wanted me to play guitar on And I'm listening to so I was like, oh, hang on, it breaks. I said, <laughs> you know, you got the score? And he's like, you can read? I'm like, yeah, why? Can anybody? You know, I, yeah. I just, I've been reading I read music before I read the King's English. So mm-hmm. I was like, I, you know, open the score. It's like, okay. Oh, clarinet. that just sounds like a small part. And I'm playing, it's like, oh, dude, it's in the wrong key. You know, they changed keys when they recorded. Sure. it. He's like, oh, is that a problem? I said, no, no, hang on. And I sight transposed it on the fly floor. Yeah. It's like, you're my guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I think that, so if you think about everything we talked about so far, it, uh, completely from like, you know, across the board diversity, listening to music growing up because of what I was exposed to radio wise and being part of the public school system and being thrown into the wind ensembles and the orchestras and the choirs and all that stuff. I just, this was part of my DNA. Right. So it was not stretch me. I didn't know, that, you know, 50 years ago that I'm going to be sitting in the control room, you know, in front of a huge SSL board playing like a Beethoven or a Tchaikovsky or, or a Greek piece. I just knew that yeah. All right, I'm going to sit down with the guitar. But I also, I could read and um, um, interpret the horn parts, the the, the string parts, mm-hmm. the, the woodwind parts, and do it fairly authentically, because I've been so ensconced in that my whole childhood. Right. right. Yeah, wow. exactly. Wow. That that's is, awesome. That's great.
1: Um, so a little more on the this piece, The Christmas Eve Sarajevo, uh, 1224. So you mentioned a little bit of the history. Can you give us a little more detail about the, the, the history of the song? And then second yeah. part of this would be the, the two melodies um they work really well together. So maybe the history of the song and then kind of me transition into the those two melodies and oh, how they well, work.
2: I'm gonna show you. Always keep an acoustic guitar close back. That's Excellent. right. <laughs> uh, okay. So again, when I went into the studio, Paul knew that I uh, you know, I, I was fairly well educated. He knew that I understood a lot of different styles of music. To what extent, I don't know if he he knew. To be honest with you, I wasn't sure that I knew how well-versed I was because I'd never used any of these things before, Mm -hmm. not at this level. Anyway, so as Paul was telling me the story, the history behind the song, is, and and this is historically accurate, is that back in whenever the war was, uh, there was a classical cellist who would take his cello down to the town square and play, you know, uh, uh, Bach pieces, with, uh, Beethoven, Chopin, whatever it was, in protest of these bombing raids. Oh wow! Okay. Mm. And like I had said, I used to, I was in that town square. Okay. So as soon as Paul started telling me that, I just started going, mm-hmm. and he heard that, and he started whistling. And I kind of looked. was like that's kind of awesome. Yeah, yeah. And that's just how it came out. And then the band came. I came up with this ostinato, and there was Carol and the Bells. And then you know it was he had the track together. He had his melodies in place, but there was something about like like the ideas, the ostinatos, the themes, the motifs that I was kind of putting in that represented his characters again. Like you guys had said earlier. You know, uh, uh, musical co- uh, musicals back in the day, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein, um, you know, uh, any of those great composers from then. I mean, they were scoring film. Yeah. So that was always part of it. When I would listen to Andrew Lloyd Webber, yeah, there were great songs in Jesus Christ Superstar, but it was a score. It had a purpose to it. The first time I heard. You know, yeah. um, and some, you know, I mean, from Jesus Christ yeah, right. right. That, that riff was very militant. You know, in tonality, you know, the fact that it was like a D Phrygian almost tonality. God, I sound like such a nerd, don't I? <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> yeah. So, but there's a reason why certain keys, certain modes, certain scales, certain tonalities fit in certain, there's a certain darkness to it. Just like when there's a Lydian mode being performed, it's a very uplifting, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, that John Williams used all the time in yes. Star Wars. So, again, paying attention to music all my life, I you know, I wanted to mathematically figure out why that was what it was. And then once I could put a mathematical equation to it, then I could at least incorporate it into my little toolbox. So, again, not knowing what I was preparing for, but when Paul would ask me to come up with a, a, a very, like, mysterious question mark-esque line, I'm like, okay, you know. Immediately getting into a Lydian tonality, mm-hmm. you know. That's on the musical level where we just bond. You know, I understood what he wanted. He knew that, you know, I I could give him not only one idea, but probably 10 different ideas in context of what he was looking for. So, you know, by, you know, but he had a knack, dude. He just had this incredible knack for not getting too over the listener's head. Like, you know, like there's a lot mm. of people who, who have done a similar type of thing, incorporating classical themes in rock, right. and it's so deep and it's just so over the top that the average person, like somebody like me is like, ah, yeah. okay, I don't get it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't need to music all night in seven or five. Right, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's got a certain thing to it. It works. But, you know, I just want to go like this. You know, yeah. <laughs> in Motown, it's got to swing a little bit. You know, yeah, I got that's right more. Yeah, yeah. You know, so there's a very fine balance between the mathematics and the theories and the actual practicality of just good music. And and right. that's, a, you know, Paul had one of many things, but he had that down. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And the form of uh, Christmas Eve, uh, Sarajevo, it's, it's fascinating. It seems to just float back and forth between like a, a lullaby and then a driving to like this, like, passionate musical storm, right? It's just... So could you tell us more about the contrast in the piece and how it's reflected in the instrumentation?
2: Well, the first, you know, the dichotomy, one of the main ones is the, the dichotomy between a rock band and an orchestra, mm-hmm. almost like the, the, the good and evil, if you will. Yeah. You know, like this kind of back and forth. Paul loved the whole concept of an ebb and flow. You know, dynamically, he used to tell me, if you jump into... Um, you know, high performance sports car, whatever, whatever it is, a Corvette, a Lamborghini, it doesn't matter. And you jump on it and you get the wheels off the ground and you're doing 200 miles an hour. It's like, this is awesome. And after about five minutes, you're like, this is boring. (laughs) There's no dynamic change. Right. So with that piece of music, he knew he wanted to make a statement because in the midst of these bombing, this bombing raid, there was lulls, you know, Mm. in the devastation. So, like like a great soundtrack composer, you know, like you guys, you know, everybody, you close your eyes, you draw your own conclusion of what it looked like, what it smelled like. As soon as he put the faders up, I knew exactly what he meant, because if you've ever been in a situation like that, it's not a constant barrage. You know, there's the the, the melancholy, you know, the starlit night. The smoke was kind of settling from the previous onslaught of bombs. And here's this cellist playing, you know, the theme from God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. And all of a sudden, over the hill, here comes the next wave of bombers. Yeah. And that's... Yeah. No mistake, but that's something bad's happening. Right, right. You know? And it kind of, you know, brings you back down dynamically to where, okay, maybe the smoke cleared for a second. You know, what can you see through... The smoke over through the horizon from this cellist vantage point where he's watching his countrymen killed and his city decimated mm-hmm. yeah so that's what i found fascinating <laughs> about the track and when he explained it to me I was like, "All ah, right, cool now let me play my instrument with that angst in mind yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it wasn't a really happy moment musically so right. i have to, my responsibility is to bring that part my voice to life as far as the instrumentation goes we always try to stay pretty true to when we were using themes from the great composers to to pay respects and and stay true to that. I mean, because that's always dangerous, you know, that that's, you know, eh, you know, but again, Paul O'Neill was so well versed in the classics that when we uh, toured in Europe, I remember playing in Vienna with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra Mm -hmm. on the evening of Beethoven's passing or the anniversary of his passing in Vienna. Wow. Whoa. You know, yeah. this is going to go one of two ways real quick. <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, right. <laughs> prepare. And a standing ovation like I've never seen oh, at the end. Wow. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, because, you know, people want to hear those themes, you know, interpreted and put into yet another story, another, you know, breathe new life into these amazing pieces of music. And the Europeans, they don't play. They take yeah. that There is. serious.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty yeah. cool too the cuz they were pioneers too you know Beethoven and you know Haydn all those guys they they, they were looking for news th- and I think it's kind of cool how you know you guys are kind of carrying the torch you know so to speak where you're yeah. paying respect like yeah giving them their props but then it's like okay let's let's do maybe this is what they is sort of a thing that they would have done yeah. and really make it into a, 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 yeah. newer, a newer creation. I think that's, that's a really cool way of, of you know, quilting. Cool well, at, at least
2: around. saying, yeah. what would Beethoven have been like with a Les Paul and a Marshall? No, exactly. Right. I mean, his exactly. pianos
1: right. were like, it just beat, beat up it, to a pulp. You know? You know? Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. You know, um, but I just know that, you know, <laughs> I learned a whole new respect for the great works because, again, growing up a kid on all long end, you know, Motown, The Beatles, The Stones, uh, a, a massive southern rock fan. I mean, those were the first my first guitar heroes: the Almond Skinner, Charlie Daniels, Marshall Tucker. Right. You know, uh, then you know, like Leslie Westwood Mountain Johnny went to Rick Derringer. I mean, you just thought about these guys crushing. <laughs> yeah. And I, but I was like, when I learned to solo to Ramblin' Man, I was like, I got this down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Until I heard Van Halen in '78 for the first time. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> and then you know, digging into the TSO. Um, working on these records, digging in with Paul, like, that, the, um, deciphering some of Beethoven's symphonies, like, and again, going back to the mathematical, yep. modal theory nerd that I am, I was like, this is deep on a whole different level. Of yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, just like, I, you know, I wouldn't have known the, this harmony, the, these reharmonizations, like the cadences, just the way that the harmony, and it, it fits seamlessly. You know, and the melodies will, pur- I mean, it just blew my mind, you know.
1: Wow.
2: Um, so I, I I learned a lot by doing these last bunch of records with the band. I mean, I, for 25 years, every time I sit down and pull, we'll throw another idea, I'm like, oh, no, not Beethoven again. <laughs> Dude, Can't Can't we just like play Melissa or Jessica? Yeah, right, right. That's how I scale for once, please, guy. But nope. <laughs> pushing the envelope made me a better player, made me a much better musician, made me a a, a pretty good band leader because now I understand, you know, the mechanics of of those works too. And I'm like, wow, incredible.
1: So speaking of touring, uh, is there just one group or do you have a couple different groups uh, that travel? Well, I know the COVID situation probably has had a huge impact uh, on your touring, (laughs) but so are there just, just one group or do you still have the two? How's that working out?
2: Well, basically, yes and no. Okay. So what happened was, is we started recording uh, in 95, 96, 97, 98. You know, we had done two Christmas records. It was uh, um, Christmas Eve and Other Stories and The Christmas Attic. And then we worked on that record, uh, Beethoven's Last Night, which was going to be Paul's first non-holiday rock opera.
1: Okay.
2: And basically, you know, for what it's worth, we were like the Steely Dan. You know, right. like we were just making records, selling millions of them, but never toured because how could you ever possibly tour with seven or eight different lead singers, you know, representing the different characters in these stories, right. you know, mm-hmm. with an orchestra. I mean, the first time we had a children's choir, you know, I'm yeah. not getting on an eight year old student. It's yeah. not.
0: <laughs>
2: so in 99, um, a gentleman, uh, Bill Lewis at an NCX in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, the radio station was just crushing airplay. And, like, Cleveland was, like, over the top, you know, playing TSO material, as was the rest of the country. But this guy turned around and said, I bet you guys couldn't come to Cleveland and do a show. And that's all you had to do was dare my boss <laughs> So So, you know, he kind of says, okay, we're going to tour. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> How are we going to do this? He's like, we'll figure it out. You know, adapt, adapt, overcome, and improvise. You know, he taught me that years ago. And to this day, that stayed with me. You know. Like, we had a narrator like reciting the poetry in between the songs through writing on the fly, this underscoring for the narration. It's going through this, um, this rock opera of a story, you know? And like every singer that we knew in New York City said, hey dude, you busy in December? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> we found, you know, like uh, violin players, cello players, just like, you know, and all of us jammed onto two buses in one truck. And we had like seven cities on that tour. It was, like, Philly, Cleveland, uh, Chicago, Detroit, New York, Boston, some of that. Yeah, and we sold out a bunch of theaters. I dude, this is awesome! Wow, that was so much fun. Thanks, you know, for a great run. <laughs> <laughs> <Surprise>. and, heck, <laughs> and it was it was literally that innocent, that simple because there was no expectations. It never been done right. before, so right. we just. A theater tour. We never played a club. We were never an opening band. We never had an opening band. Which is, mm. dude, I tell you what. The first show at the Tower Theater in Philadelphia. I'll never forget this. Like it was yesterday. Okay, 1995. They said, oh, excuse me, 1999. They said sold out. I'm like, but who bought tickets to this? You know, <laughs> who's buying all these records? Who's coming? To, do they know who? They, everybody thought we were from Russia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so the house lights go down. The curtain comes up. And, like, the fog that was rolling out of one fog machine off the side of the stage kind of parted. And in front of me was, like, this really attractive, like, I don't know, late 60s, early 70s-year-old couple. Like, somebody's grandma and grandpa with those crocheted reindeer sweaters that Mm. people wear around the holidays. It's like, oh, that's cute. And next to them was a dude in a Slayer hoodie. (laughs) (laughs) Very diverse. Yes. Yeah.
1: Fun for the whole family.
2: (laughs) But we're dead. (laughs) (laughs) Put my head down, played standing ovation. It was awesome, it was so oh, yeah, much. Fun. Wow, All those shows, man, it was so crazy. Uh, the next year in two thousand, they they said we're gonna go tour again, but we have an issue. And I was like, uh, what? They said, well, we got you know the thirteen colonies. Were, you know, we're doing pretty good, but then they want shows like you know Seattle, Dallas, L.A., uh, Phoenix. Oh, wow. How are we getting the band out that way? Paul said, "Funny you should ask that. <laughs> you bring in Johnny Lee, the bass player, and a couple of the singers, and you're going to put a whole band together around you guys. And the other two guys are going to go find the rest of the members for another band. And we're going to have to like cut in half. Nice, right? You know, until November, December, because we physically cannot like hit the whole country. Right. Right? Sure, you know. Right. Now that was the first. And again, you adapt, you overcome, and you improvise, mm-hmm. right? So we all rehearse in one building, and then it's like, right, see you all after New Year's." Oh, wow. Yeah. Years into that, they're like, "Now we need another band or you guys have to start doing afternoon shows because in Colorado Springs and Salt Lake City, they sold 14,000 tickets in about 11 minutes. Wow. Oh, my. And, they, and I said, well, what are we going to do? They so, said, we got to do a show at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> We're going to do a rock show at lasers and Pyro at 3 in the afternoon? <laughs> right. Have, have a little bite to eat and then do it again at 8? Really? <laughs> really? <laughs>
1: Yeah,
2: nice. I thought this thing's grown up over the last you know 21 years of touring, with the exception of this disastrous pandemic. Yeah, man. yeah. You know, put the brakes on us for one year, but yeah. if, if if that's a, a small problem compared to the amount of pain and anguish and the things that are going on with the families globally now. Sure, so I'll get sure. a yeah, yeah. Bigger picture, right? And yeah. we'll, we'll figure something else out,
1: right? So, yeah. because of all that, where where's the best place for our listeners to to find the music for uh, of Trans Siberian Orchestra, so they can really get
2: a well, I mean, first and foremost, you could always go to trans-siberian.com. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm old, so I don't really, I don't kind of like go on the internet all that much, but it's, it's a pretty good website. You can find out all about the band. There's a discography. You can link to, uh, click on certain links. You can go to, I don't, know, I don't even know where you can buy music, music. I was going to say go to the record store, but that's an antiquated <laughs> idea. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of YouTube videos out from the shows. Okay. And, you know, there's a lot that you can kind of research. I mean, you know, a, a lot of people have embraced us uh, uh, very dearly as part of the holiday tradition. Right? Yeah. Even past the holidays, you know, we've had great success like touring and bringing these works, you know, out, out to the masses. Like I said, especially by the great composers. But I got to tell you guys, and I love what you're doing, especially when it comes to kids and music education, because the most important, the, the hidden treasure in my job, is again, I'm downstage center. Okay, with my lust ball around my neck, and I'm looking out, you know, there's 15, 16, 17,000 people, whatever it is. And that's all cool. But every so often I'll look down and I'll see a four- or five-year-old child, you know, boy or girl, and I'll kind of see that little glimmer of light go off. Right. And I can't tell you how many times that they'll come down the autograph line after the show and say, I want to start taking guitar lessons or I want to start taking violin lessons or I want to sing or whatever it is. And that, to me... Is, is the greatest gift of them all because yeah. maybe know some, some, you know, young kid just in a different trajectory enough to at least give them the opportunity to put this thing on their lap yeah. as opposed to a laptop or a phone, you know? Yeah. Yep. Right. And then every so often, I'd say three or four times in the last 25 years, one of those children that came down the line 12 years later ends up auditioning for the band. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I actually hired a couple of them over the years to where I remember distinctly, 10 years old, this, this young kid, Andrew Goimer. Uh, he's based out of um, uh, 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 Sacramento area, California. You know, got me on the autograph find, asked me to sign his guitar, and he goes, one day I want to be in a band with him. I'm like, hey, dude, just practice, you know? And he found me on Facebook, and he'd send me, like, you know, messages, and I'll I talk, I don't, that's fine. He just, Well, he's in the backup band now, you know, and he's like 24 wow. years old. He just worked and worked and worked. And so to be, to influence another generation of children, to expose them to Beethoven and Chopin and Grieg and Liszt, and uh, just like things that they normally wouldn't listen to, or maybe Motown or maybe acoustic works, or maybe just the fact that they were like watching a rock opera. Paul O'Neill's work is just handed another generation. Check this out. Yeah, right. Yeah. And for me, like my daughters, my, my older sons kind of grew up with the band. My daughters, they don't know anything different, you know? Mm -hmm. So Olivia, who's nine years old, has been coming to see the show since she's three years old. You know, she's singing, she's dancing. She, you know, she's got her own little pink Stratocaster now. My (laughs) little daughter, Layla, just thinks, you do, you go to concerts, you have a laminate, you go to catering and you watch every night, you know? so. My children is one thing, but to look out in the audience and see three or four generations of family members sitting together and younger ones who say, hey, Grandpa, can I have a guitar? Yeah. yeah right. That's a true blessing in my job. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: And yeah, that's something that we hope that with this show, you know, we get to talk to people like you in hopes that they, you know, check out the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Maybe they never would have before. And so that's that's definitely something that we hope to do, and we'll definitely put the links in the uh, description in uh, and, and show notes and all that. Yeah, so that we can, because we want people to
2: listen to you guys. I mean, it's just amazing, so. Yeah. I, I was thank you so much, because there's so much depth musically. and it's not, the, the funny, not funny, but one of the most uh, interesting things about the band is that, you know, a 10-year-old may like go, this is so cool, but his mom or her mom Dad, the grandparents will also find something on the records that they love, that they're familiar with. Right. So everybody's like learning something new mm-hmm. about somebody else's generation of music. Yeah. You know, everybody's grandparents, you know, maybe they like you know like we do a Leon Russell-esque type, you know, stride piano thing on mm-hmm. one song, and you know, like maybe the older family members are like, ah, oh, you know, it's kind of cool. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And the kids, are like, hey, you're right, but then like listen to like this crazy guitar, and this violin, whatever. <laughs> To everybody, and we get to teach each other things that you don't know, you know, and that's the beauty of music, you know, it really doesn't know any boundaries if given the opportunity. Yes, yeah, I don't want all these radio formats and like, you know, like okay, here's the hip hop station, here's the street hip hop station, here's the rock station, here's classic rock, here's 60s, it's just like stop writing, give me one good good music
0: station (laughs) right
2: right no i mean you guys I mean there's only 12 notes in music right that's it right Right. you have a finite amount of ingredients with an infinite amount of combinations so the fact that beethoven and led zeppelin use the same exact notes come on yeah why why paint yourself into a corner from the jump man just listen to the things that you normally wouldn't listen to yeah that's great
0: that's awesome well al uh Petrelli, amazing guitarist of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Thanks so much for being on the show, and we wish you all the best.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I enjoyed our conversation a lot, guys. Yeah. Most importantly, stay safe. Right? Yes. Stay yes. healthy, safe. Much love. Have a great holiday season. I hope to see you soon.
0: Time to wrap it up, folks. Thank you so much for tuning into The Music Podcast for Kids. We hope you enjoyed the show, and most importantly, learned something cool today about music. Remember to send in your jokes or even a topic in music you would like us to discuss by visiting our website, themusicpodcastforkids.com. If you are interested in awesome educational and fun songs for your kids to listen and sing along with, please visit brucefight.com. Music is available to download with iTunes, CD Baby, and Facebook, and most streaming platforms like Spotify and Amazon Radio. Links will be found in the show notes.
1: If you are interested in learning how to play the piano with a fun and engaging curriculum geared toward kids, please subscribe to Mr. Henry's YouTube channel called
0: mr henry's music world links will be found in the show notes please visit itunes to leave a review of the podcast and also share the podcast with friends relatives aliens whoever again we thank you
1: so much for tuning in